In 1 Corinthians, we've entitled it, Keeping First Things First. Keeping First Things First. Uh, before the reading, let me begin by asking a question. I want you to think hard. I know a lot's happened this evening, so just try and concentrate, all right? Because we've got quite a hard passage in front of us, but a very important one as well. Okay, here's the question. It's a question addressed to those of us who claim to be Christians, all right? What would you say if you discover at the end of your life that death is the end of everything? If you're a Christian, would you say, I've had a wonderful life as a Christian anyway, or I've wasted my life on something that's not true? Now, I'm not going to embarrass you, you'll be asking to put your hand up. But our passage this evening focuses on, deals with this question, and we'll give you the right answer, and at the end we'll come back and I'll tell you which is the right answer. So, kind of mark in your mind which is your answer, right? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 through to 34, page 1155. You need a Bible, especially this evening, it's important to have a Bible in front of you, open at the page because we're going to be looking at what it says, as we always seek to do with God's help. In our last study with our former pastor Derek Prime last week, we focused on the evidence of the resurrection, the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. And now Paul says in verse 12, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what about those who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every day? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some of you who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. This is God's word. Now, as you look at this together with me, there are three sections in this, consecutive sections. And they're linked by three key words. The first section is in verses 12 to 19, and the key word is if. If. The logical consequences of believing that there is no resurrection from the dead. Then in contrast, verses 20 to 28, but the absolute certainties that follow from the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. And thirdly, in verses 29 to 34, now the present implications of what you believe about the resurrection of the dead. For as we look at this together, and each of these in turn, they're of vital importance. For what you believe about this issue will affect how you spend your life, and how you will spend eternity. So let's follow carefully. First of all, then, if Paul deals with the logical consequences of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. We learn from verse 12 that some of the Corinthian Christians, not all, but obviously an influential group, were saying or teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead. This probably didn't mean they did didn't mean that they believed there was no existence after death. Most people believed that in those days. But rather, there was no bodily resurrection from the dead. Corinth was a Greek city, and as you may know, if you had to study Greek philosophy at school, which most people don't do nowadays, I suppose, but the, the Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul. They believed that your soul was imprisoned in your body, the body was a prison, and that when you died, the soul was released from the cage like a bird, and became purely spiritual. In addition to this, as we've already seen in Paul's letter, some of the Christians at Corinth believed they were already experiencing all the spiritual life that God had promised. Here and now, there was nothing more to come. This was a kind of widespread teaching. If you read Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter, he said that people were teaching this and it was spreading like gangrene. People saying that the resurrection of the dead is past. There's nothing more to come in the future. This is all there is. We're already arrived. Now, you may say this is a bit illogical, as some of the Corinthians had already died anyway, but logic wasn't the strong suit of the Corinthian Christians. And Paul tries to force them to think through the implications of what they actually believe. And he points out seven logical consequences. Each one begins with the word if. Just look at them in, in sequence, very quickly. It's very obvious what he says. The first is the most fundamental of all. He says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 13 and verse 16. David Pryor in his commentary on 1 Corinthians writes, if dead men don't rise, then Jesus is still dead. Presumably, the Corinthian heretics never intended to suggest that Jesus was still dead. But Paul is pressing the logic of their position in order to reveal its menace. If you remove this foundation stone of the resurrection of the dead and of Jesus, then all the supporting bricks collapse to the ground. And the next one that Paul lists is, our preaching is useless. Literally, he puts the word useless at the beginning. The word literally means empty. There's no content to what we preach. Not the act of preaching, but the content. If the resurrection is false, 
then Christianity is worthless. Not only that, he says your faith is useless, using the same word. Useless, he says, is your faith. You see, faith is not as many people commonly believe, believing in something that's not true. Faith of the Christian is something based on fact. And the central fact of all is that Christ is risen from the dead. Now, if Christ is not risen, then there's no content to your faith. It's based on nothing. If it didn't happen, there is no foundation. It is only a lie. David Pryor again comments, Take out the resurrection of Jesus. There's nothing left on which to rest faith. Only the decomposing corpse of an itinerant Jewish carpenter turned rabbi. And if that were not serious enough, Paul then says another consequence. We are found to be false witnesses about God. The word found means to be caught out, to be detected in a lie to be tricked up, to be exposed like one of these television programs where they do an exposing on people and reveal what they're actually saying. And Paul says, we've claimed on God's behalf that God himself did this, that he raised Jesus from the dead. If this is not true, we are misrepresenting God. That is a most serious matter. And this leads to another consequence for those who have believed in this message that the apostles claimed came from God. He says, if it's not true, he says, you're still in your sins. In verse 14, Paul says their faith is useless. It has no content. Now he says it is futile. It means it doesn't have any effect. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin to God on our behalf. Now, if he's still dead, then his sacrifice was ineffective. But God declared that he had accepted it by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the proof that in Jesus there is forgiveness of sins. Because unlike all other people, he didn't just die and remain dead, the consequence of sin. His mission had failed. Those who have trusted in Christ are still in their sins. They are still not forgiven. Their faith has no effect. Their relationship with God is unchanged. And then he says, what about those people who believe this message they claim came from God, that Jesus rose from the dead and have died. They've fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. For the Christian, dying is like falling asleep and waking in the presence of God. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, there's no resurrection. And when you die, that's it. You don't wake up at all. Nothing at all. Gordon Fee, another writer, comments, Paul's point is that to deny the resurrection of the dead is not only to deny one's past, but finally to deny any real future as well. And these are such awful consequences that seventhly and finally Paul says, if this is true, if this is true, we are to be pitied more than all men. We've we've based our lives on something that is a lie. What a terrible thing. We're deluded people. Leon Morris comments, the believer is a martyr to an illusion. Anybody is better off than he. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is absolutely fundamental. If you can disprove it, you have destroyed Christianity, which is why down the centuries, people have attempted to do it in all sorts of ways. And the amazing thing is, that many people have looked at the evidence, investigated, tried to write against it. It's a remarkable thing how many of them instead have come to faith in Christ and believed, looking at the evidence, that it really is true. Yet it's amazing today that there are still people who claim this. 
In an interview ten years ago, Dr. David Jenkins, the then Bishop of Durham, was reported as saying that he believes that the bones of Jesus may well be somewhere lying in a tomb in the Middle East. He's not absolutely certain. This is what he said. I think the more I'm involved in this, the less likely I think that anything that might be called a physical reconstruction or resurrection took place. But such a view contradicts all that the Gospel claims. No wonder that people believe, who believe as he believes are emptying out of the churches. Another Anglican, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, puts the truth, Dr. Michael Ramsey. The Gospel without the resurrection is not merely a Gospel without a final chapter, it's not a gospel at all. It's not good news. It's bad news. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. Look at the logic of your position. Look carefully at the argument. Look at the foundations. If, if there is no resurrection, then it's all a complete waste of time. But having said that, he then turns. You, you almost sense the relief in his voice when he comes to verse 20. He says, but... He comes to absolute certainties. Paul has no doubts about the bodily resurrection of Christ. In our last study we looked at that. The evidence of the many eyewitnesses, Paul himself, last of all, up to 500 people on one occasion, people who saw Jesus over a period of 40 days and knew that he really had risen from the dead. And while the consequences of not believing in the resurrection are awful, the consequences of believing in the resurrection are absolutely wonderful. Now it's interesting, when you come to this next section from verse 20 onwards, Paul doesn't list all the seven opposites to the things that he's talked about negatively. He doesn't give the positive things. But he focuses on the one question, the resurrection of the dead. Gordon Fee again comments, Paul now turns to demonstrate that Christ's resurrection, which both he and the Corinthians believe, has made the resurrection of the dead both necessary and inevitable. And the reason why it's necessary and inevitable is that it's God's plan which is set in place, which God alone can accomplish. So Paul says, we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Notice an interesting point about the language that he uses here. He doesn't say, Christ has risen from the dead. That is true in a general sort of sense. But he didn't do it alone. No, what he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, verse 20. God has raised him from the dead. God intervened to bring him back to life. Look what he says. He says he's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Now in our modern technological age where you get all your food from the supermarket, we're not probably familiar with what first fruits are, but first fruits in an agrarian society uh, were the first gleanings of any crop that were brought out to say, look, here's the first fruits, the full harvest is coming. What he is saying here is that there is a crop coming, a harvest, not of produce, but of people. People will be raised from the dead, from being buried in the ground, to a new kind of life in which they'll never die again. And he says, Christ is the first fruits. He's the first of this new life that God has given, raising people from the dead. Now, while there are rare occasions, if you know the Bible in the past, there are rare occasions of people being raised from the dead in the Old Testament. There's the example that Jesus raised people from the dead, people like Lazarus. The resurrection of Christ is different in one respect. Lazarus, unfortunately, died again. But Jesus lives 
in the power of an endless life, he will never die again. Christ is the first fruits, which means there is much more to come. A harvest of people who believe in him and belong to him, who will be raised from the dead. Now he says, by nature all of us belong to the race of our first parents, to what he calls Adam, who was the first man of course, who rebelled against God. And the wages of that sin is death. So when we're born, we have within us the seeds of death. So he pictures these two men, Adam, who brings death. But now he says, another man has come, as it were, kind of second Adam. He's undone what Adam did by obeying God perfectly. Dying the death we deserved in our place. God has accepted what he did and showed it by raising him from the dead. Christ brings life. Now Christ is the leader of a new humanity, of those who trust in him. Look at this very key verse in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. But notice the future tense. Will all be made alive. A future resurrection is coming when all who belong to Christ will be raised again from the dead. So those in Corinth who said, look, it's all finished. The resurrection of the dead is something that happened in the past. Nothing else is happening. Paul says, no, no. There is a future resurrection from the dead. You've got your timing wrong. There is an order of events promised. The word he uses is an interesting word if you look at it in verse 23. The resurrection order. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead. But there are others who will come in the future who will be made alive. But he says in verse 23, each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, when he comes, those who belong to him. The first event which has already taken place in the past is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Christ is the firstfruits when God raised him from the dead. The final event, he says, is when Christ comes. The word there is literally, in his coming. It's an interesting word. It's the word used of the arrival of a royal visitor to a particular country. Literally, at his coming. Those who belong to Christ will be the full harvest when he comes. The dead in Christ will be raised. The word translates, we look at the word there, but each in his own turn. The word is a military term of rank, of people marching in order. Someone has put it this way. The commander is raised first, his troops afterwards. Kind of like that. The commander is raised first, his troops afterwards. Now, we live between those two events. We look back 2,000 years to when Christ was raised from the dead. We look forward to his coming with anticipation and hope. So what is happening in between? Well, in between, as we've been singing, Christ is extending his kingdom. He is reigning, ruling. How is his kingdom extended? His kingdom is extended one person at a time as people come to submit to the rule of Christ. As I preach in this church, as people preach in churches, as you share your faith with individuals, someone shared with me wonderfully last night that someone came to faith at the Bethany Caravan, led the person to faith in Christ. God's kingdom was extended, probably on Waverley Bridge last night, with someone who came to faith in Christ, who submitted to his rule, and bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. So his kingdom is extended. That person receives new life. Christ's rule is extended. But his enemies, the malevolent spiritual forces, you see as you see those pictures of all those Christians being persecuted, behind it all 
It's a battle that is going on. A battle against principalities, against powers, against spiritual forces in the heavenly realm, against the kingdom of Christ. Human beings are but the forward agents of that, often unwittingly. So he says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. You see, those who belong to Christ still die. But death is not final, for at the coming of Christ, they'll be raised to life again. They will never die, but live forever. For death itself will have been abolished, as it were, the death of death. And when that happens, Paul says, quoting from the psalm, Psalm 8, verse 6, Christ will have put everything under his feet. Gordon Fee writes, Death is the final enemy. At its destruction, true meaningfulness is given to life itself. As long as people die, God's own sovereign purposes are not yet fully realized. Hence the necessity of the resurrection, so as to destroy death by robbing it of its store of those who do not belong to it, because they belong to Christ. Now, this is just an incredible, wonderful hope. There's a lot of young people here this evening. Most young people think they're never going to die. I have bad news for you. Unless Christ comes, and we pray Maranatha as he will come, one day you will get older and you will die. The question is, do you belong to Christ? Because if you belong to Christ, here is the assurance, you'll be raised to life. There's just, I tell you, I've taken funeral services over the years. I've got a file in my office since I've been here in Charlotte Chapel the last 11 years. A great big file of all the people whose funeral service I've taken. We don't call them funeral services, we call them Thanksgiving services. There is just an amazing difference between taking a service for someone who belongs to Christ and someone about whose faith you have no assurance whatsoever. It's just a devastating difference. If you've been to services, you'll know what I'm talking about. Those who have no hope without God in the world. And this is why we need to say to people, there is new life in Christ. You can have this assurance that when you die, you will be with Christ forever. You will be raised to life. The dead in Christ will rise. And if you're still left when Christ returns, you'll be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall be forever with the Lord. So comfort yourself with these words, says the Apostle Paul, in one of his letters further on. So God's eternal kingdom will be established. And Christ hands over the kingdom. He says, of course, God doesn't come in subjection to the Son, God the Father. God the Father has delegated this mission to his Son that he's carrying out on earth through his servants. And finally, when it's all done, Christ will hand over the kingdom to his Father. Verse 24. So God's kingdom will be established with a new heaven and a new earth in which those who belong to Christ will inhabit it with new resurrection bodies. Now you say, what are those bodies like? Well, to find out, you need to look at the end of the chapter, come next week, or no, the week after next, when we'll be looking at at, at that. Now, this is an amazing timetable that's in place. Looking back to the resurrection of Christ, looking forward to the return of Christ, that God is extending his kingdom through his son Jesus Christ until he's put all his enemies under his feet and then death itself will be destroyed and we shall live forever with Christ. This is such a fantastic hope. And Paul says these are absolute certainties. Uh, Just think, again, I'm trying to think of an example. There isn't really one, but uh, 
think by, by way of an example, very poor one, of those escapist films. You know the ones where you know that the superhero, no matter what happens, you can watch the film and all the baddies do all their worst to him because you know in the end he's going to triumph and it's all going to work out fine in the end. Not one of these modern real films where the baddie gets killed and you, feel, you go out feeling worse than when you went in. You know what I mean? Now think about that. It's a very poor example. But what he's saying is that God has got everything under control. Christ will reign. And the reason we can be so sure is that God has raised Christ from the dead. That's the first fruits. That's a guarantee that he can and will do what he's promised in the future. And this is why the resurrection of Christ is so important. I, I just cannot understand anyone. I just cannot understand a churchman saying it doesn't really matter. Of course it matters. Christ is not raised. We've got no hope. And now Paul turns finally then to the present implications in verses 29 to 34. He brings it back to the present. And, and he lists here three situations which, are, which are, are affected vitally by whether you believe in the resurrection of the dead or not. Here's the first one. He says in verse 29, What about those who are baptized for the dead? Now, this is probably the most obscure verse in the New Testament. In other words, no one really knows what he meant. The Corinthians obviously knew because he was talking to them about something they were doing. Scholars have said that there are at least 40, maybe as many as 200 different explanations of what this verse might mean. So if you're prepared to stay till tomorrow morning, I'm not going to give you the answer because I don't know it. The obvious meaning of it, I'll tell you what the obvious meaning of it is. The obvious meaning is that in Corinth, it seemed that some people were being baptised on behalf of other Christians who had died. I don't know. Maybe a father became a Christian and then suddenly was taken ill and died before he could get baptised. Or there was, people think there was an epidemic in Corinth and a lot of Christians died. And so people were baptised by proxy. That's a very weird practice and it certainly doesn't justify what the Mormons do which is to collect as many names of people who've died as they can and be baptised on their behalf. There's no justification here for that whatsoever. Paul, interestingly, doesn't condemn it but he doesn't associate himself with it. He says, what about those who do this? And whatever it means, he's saying, look, they're doing something on behalf of people who've died that will affect their future. And he says, if they have no future, what's the point in doing it anyway? What's the point? There's no point whatsoever. Now an easier bit, an obvious bit. He then turns to another issue relating to himself and his fellow workers. As for us, he says, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? He goes on to describe, he says, I take daily risk for the sake of Christ. He says, in Ephesus, I fought with wild beasts. That probably doesn't mean it literally. For several reasons, Roman citizens weren't allowed to fight wild animals normally, and if you fought wild animals in the arena in the Roman amphitheatre, you usually didn't live to tell the tale and write about it much later. He's probably using it for people who opposed him, who were like wild animals, human opponents. He says, we constantly risk our lives for Christ. And he says, if there's no resurrection, if there's nothing afterwards, what's the point? Why bother? If life is all there is, well, we'd be better just doing what Isaiah wrote about. In Isaiah 22, he wrote about people uh, who eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
there was a group of Greek philosophers, the Epicurean philosophers, who practiced this philosophy. They said, there's nothing beyond this life, so just make the most of it, have a great time. We who constantly risk our lives for Christ, why bother? And finally, it turns to the Corinthians themselves, who were teaching, or at least tempted to believe, that this teaching was all there is, and there's no resurrection from the dead. And he gives a quotation there from a Greek poet called Menander. Do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. The word company literally relates to conversations, the word we get homilies from. The inference is, he says, don't mix with people who teach bad things. Like these people who are teaching, there is no resurrection from the dead. Don't associate with these false teachers. And interestingly, he says, false teaching always leads to sinful living. None more so than saying there is no resurrection from the dead. Listen, if at the end of this life, I don't have to stand before God the judge and give an account of my life, if there's nobody going to judge me, well, I'll live for myself and do what I like. I'll get away with what I can. Like the athlete who thinks I can take drugs because nobody's ever going to catch me. They haven't devised a test yet. But if there is a resurrection from the dead, if one day all of us will stand before God the judge, then we need to be careful. And he literally uses the word, he says to you, he says, sober up. Think clearly and stop sinning. What we believe about the future will always have implications for how we live in the present. If we think this life is all there is, then you die and that's it, then live for this life. If you believe that death is not the end, that one day you'll have to give an account of your life before God, then you will seek to live in a way that pleases Him. And all of us are doing one of those two things. And if you're shaky about it, you're in trouble. If you're not sure about it, then you will dither and say, well, maybe I'll do that thing that I shouldn't do because maybe it's not really true anyway and maybe there really isn't anything after this life. If you're a convinced Christian who believes in the resurrection of the dead, then it will affect the way that you live. Now let me finish with the question with which we began and the two answers. And I'd be really interested to know how many of you said which answer and whether you've changed your mind after this. Okay, what would you say if you discover at the end of your life that death is the end of everything? I've had a wonderful life, as a Christian anyway. I've wasted my life on something that isn't true. I'm just amazed how many Christians nowadays are here saying answer number one. Oh, well, if it's not true, I've had a wonderful life as a Christian anyway. Listen, do you think those people on that screen who have died for Christ, who've been mutilated, tortured, raped, had their homes dispossessed, at the end of their life they discover it was all an illusion. They're going to say, oh, it's great, I've had a wonderful life anyway. It's just nonsense. If it's not true, we have wasted our lives. And I've wasted a pastoral career and a career as a missionary based on something that just isn't true. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Only an absolute conviction that Christ was raised from the dead will determine how we spend our lives and will determine where you spend eternity. With Christ or without Christ? In heaven or in hell?
And I simply ask you, do you have such a conviction? I finish with another verse. Paul speaking in another great Greek city, Athens. Challenging Greek philosophers on this very point. He says this, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. How do you know, Paul? He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. If you've never repented, then tonight's the night. Before it's too late. What a hope is offered to you. Eternal life. You'll be raised to life with Christ. Some of us here, older members in this congregation, have seen our loved ones already go before us. And we're looking forward to that great reuniting and the hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't got such a hope, I urge you to seek it. And tonight to seek Christ, coming to him in repentance and faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we have a gospel, good news for all people. A gospel that is based not on wishful things.